0: Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher and we have got an Asia-Pacific focus this week with David Green Morgan, who's Global Head of Real Assets researcher MSCI. David's based in Singapore but originates from Wales. David, very good to see you in the flesh today. And obviously, as many listeners know, I've got very, very fond memories of my time working with IPD, which subsequently was acquired by MSCI but you and I sadly never got to work together back in those days and you've had a fascinating time hanging out in Australia and obviously most recently Singapore which is a a long way from your birthplace of Aberystwyth. Yeah a long way and actually a long way
1: from those early IPD days in Camden as well which is where I started out on my journey in commercial property so it feels like I've kind of come full
0: circle back into the index side of the business and it's a great pleasure to be with you here. Back in London, tell us over the last six months what has been happening in Asia. I know this is an astoundingly big, vague, open question. (laughs) Let's just, for listeners' benefit, shape what Asia covers or what you cover within Asia, because it's not everything, but it's all of the big core cities, essentially, isn't it?
1: Yes, and I'd say the the biggest change in the last six months in Asia has basically been the opening up of the countries outside of kind of greater China. So Mm. Asia has opened up much more slowly than we've seen in Europe and in the US. You know, even just a month or two ago, to get into Japan and Korea, you still needed uh, COVID tests. All of that has gone away now. So it's made travel much easier. We've seen a return of the conference circuit. So there's been a flood of property conferences around the region in the last few months, which has been great to... get together with people. And although transactional volumes and the market is obviously entering a much more uncertain period, generally, I'd say the sentiment feels relatively positive Mm. across the region. And we've obviously got the big outlier in terms of monetary policy, which is Japan, which is continuing to keep its interest rates at virtually zero, which, of course, is offering... Investors are big differential to what you're finding in other
0: parts of the world and other parts of Asia as well. Mm. I mean, there was just doubling down on Japan. There has been talk for a few years about the deregulation of Japanese institutions leading to a lot of money coming from Japan into Europe, into the UK. It's not really happened, has it? Not really,
1: no. And things in Japan do move relatively slowly. You know, GPIF, only started investing in real estate maybe five or six years ago. explain to people
0: what GPIF is.
1: It's the world's biggest pension fund, essentially. So it's the Japanese government-sponsored pension fund. And only recently, as I said, has started to invest into real estate. And the expectation was that this would be a huge boost to outbound capital from Japan. But as you say, it hasn't really happened. And the other Japanese institutions haven't really devoted that much time, I would say, to outbound investment, at least on the direct side. There is some activity in debt markets and US CMBS, but not really, as we've seen from other Asian investors, which is to invest, you know, directly into UK, Germany,
0: and the gateway cities of the Mm. US. I mean, yeah, I mean, it remains a very protectionist economy, doesn't it, in pretty much every sense?
1: Yes, it's very difficult to break into. And, you know, we don't see a huge amount of foreign capital going into Japan, Mm. either. Although, with this big differential in interest rates that will certainly i think offer opportunities for both domestic and international investors mm. in Japan particularly
0: next year well, on the plus side in Japan the trains do run on time They do run on t- to the <laughs> second to, <laughs> to, the, to second. the second so so yeah, absolutely uh, in terms of balance it's uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's sunshine as well as showers i mean let's sort of scoot around the region quickly in terms of australia where you spent some time out in Sydney, mm. that market doesn't look like it's been a huge shift over the recent few years. It's had a good run,
1: Australia, and certainly we're just starting to see maybe a slight cooling off, particularly in transactional activity. And it's one of the markets in the world where we have some of our best index data as well, and we can see that industrial values are correcting as we are in many parts of the world. Interestingly, in Australia, retail is doing surprisingly quite Well, we've seen some big transactions
0: and actually returns are still holding up pretty good. And why is that? I mean, it's that I'm guessing partly because it doesn't have the density that the US and parts of Europe have that enables a high level of e-commerce to be affordable for the providers.
1: Yeah, I mean, e-commerce came much later to Australia than other parts of the world. It's only really in the last two or three years during the COVID period where it really received a big boost, understandably, as we all had to change our patterns of kind of shopping Mm -hmm. behaviour. But also, the planning in Australia makes it very difficult to build new shopping centres, essentially. So the the shopping centres that already exist have a very strong foothold. And we've seen, as we have in many parts of the world, you know, investors focusing on particularly grocery-anchored shopping centres, which many of the big ones in Australia have benefited from, but also... I think the pricing in retail adjusted to the point where investors have started to look at it again as a viable investment opportunity. Obviously, you know, it went through its challenges pre-COVID with the emergence of e-commerce and logistics and so on and so forth when we saw retail values adjust quite considerably. Mm. And, you know, the differential between retail and some of the other sectors is probably the widest it's ever been on record up until... Recently, So I think that extra yield has enticed some investors back into
0: the market as well. And it's probably the Asian market that runs most like Britain, isn't it, in terms of uh, the the general transparency, the depth of, not just the depth of data, but the depth of established institutional investors. Yeah, and it's
1: probably the easiest market in the region for global capital or regional capital to invest in. As well. So, as you say, very transparent, very easy to move your money in, very easy to do transactions, very easy to dispose and move your money back to wherever you need it to Mm. go as well. So,
0: and up until recently, you'd have probably said a similar thing about Hong Kong,
1: wouldn't you? You would have. One of the most actively traded markets in the region, you know, go back to 2015, 2016, had the highest price growth of any city in the world, seemed as if nothing could go wrong. Chinese companies coming in and opening offices in Hong Kong for the first time, driving occupier demand, rents were going up, a lot of tourism, particularly for mainland China, really boosting the hotels and the retail sector, a good logistics market as well. Mm. That's a global hub, isn't it? Yes. Like Singapore. Correct. But then, unfortunately, the tide started to turn in Hong Kong and with the political domestic political issues as well as... A very obviously strict COVID policy they've had for the last two or three years has made Hong Kong a much more domestic market. We do see some capital from mainland China coming in, but virtually no other international capital has been transacting Mm. in Hong
0: Kong the last few years. What about the capital that's there? Because there's obviously a hell of a lot of money that's gone in over the years and that didn't just sort of pack up get on a plane and come back to London when Boris Johnson started handing out (laughs) visas when he was Prime Minister. So what's happened to all of the global capital from the UK, from the States, from Europe that's currently sat there? Well,
1: it's still there, essentially. It's holding on to the assets that it owns. And what's the future for it? For those investors, what's their exit? Well, that's a good question. I think that's quite uncertain at the moment. You know, the demand for commercial space is quite weak. At the moment, and I think we're going to need to see a few quarters of an improving economic picture. You know, the government now is trying to entice companies back to Hong Kong because a number of companies left, came to Singapore, went to Seoul, Tokyo, Sydney, because it was just becoming so difficult to do business in or run a regional business from Hong Kong. So I think we're going to need to see a period of stability and a period where the market starts to pick up a bit more momentum of course that may very well entice more investors back into hong kong it is still one of the region's biggest cities and you know while it's still got its own currency still got its own unlimited capital flows it still offers quite an attractive investment uh, environment. It's just that it's gone through uh, just the risk hit. of
0: not being able to get your money out. It's a bit of a risk. If you're well, uh, it's.
1: I think you can get your money out. The risk is, can you sell the assets that you've got? So it's not so much a risk of not being able to move your money. It's
0: can you sell your asset and at what price can you sell your asset given what's happened the last few mm. years? Now, how much if you had to estimate the volume of foreign capital that's still locked up there? What would that be? What oh, ballpark it, figure? Oh, many, many tens of billions
1: of dollars. And many, you know, hundreds of investors still own properties within Mm. Hong Kong.
0: And so presumably Seoul and and Singapore have been pretty big beneficiaries of all this. I mean, both have obviously got very big bases in tech, manufacturing, and Singapore being pretty much the biggest global trading hub. Mm. How have those markets weathered the COVID storm over the last three years? And as we peer into Q1, Q2... What is the vibe for those more prime markets?
1: Yeah, I think they're both quite different, actually, I would say, between Seoul and Singapore. Seoul and Korea as a whole had a, if you can, a very good COVID period, actually, because so much of that Korean capital, which had been investing overseas, was suddenly more or less trapped within Korea, but still wanted to be deployed within commercial real estate. So, in Korea, we saw some of the strongest price growth during 2020 and 2021, particularly in the office sector and in logistics as well. But that has started to correct. So those some of those valuations have started to come off. And particularly the Bank of Korea, you know, was one of the first to move on interest rates. And they've consistently increased interest rates, not quite month on month, but quite consistently over the last 12 months. or So
0: Korea is... Well, I mean, most people have been a bit quicker than the Brits and the Americans. The, the, yes, they?
1: correct. So... Korea is in that period where, you know, interest rates are now higher than property yields. So there's a bit of kind of a stalemate in the market in terms of how does this all play out and when do sellers start to adjust to the new environment and move their prices. Singapore, on the other hand, has had a tremendous 2022, a big surge in office investment activity. The beginning of the year, many of the landmark buildings were trading. Still good occupier take-up, rental growth sentiment has changed slightly because of the issues within the tech sector singapore is a big employer and a big home to most of the global tech firms not just the us ones but chinese ones as well and as we know that sector is kind of going through a bit of an adjustment and there's an anxiety that that's going to snowball in 2023 not an anxiety i would say that it feels like most of that impact will come in this year and hopefully 2023 or at least second half of 2023 will be more of a recovery story so people aren't viewing this as another 2001 2002 no i don't think it's on that scale i think you know back then companies were being valued astronomically i mean it's obviously still happening to some degree look how much uh,
0: meta facebook (laughs) and the share price is down so there's, there's a one would argue that that's on a par with some yes, of those price collapses 20 years ago, although it'd be for different reasons, really. That yes, that was a... different
1: reasons. I think they're much more, hopefully, sustainable companies now than what we mm. went through in the first kind of tech wreck.
0: But I think it's fair to say that what we've seen over the last 10 years, David, is lots of business models that made sense when money was free are probably not going to make sense when money costs five, six percent.
1: Correct. And I guess, you know, that's part of both the economic cycle and the property cycle is that, you know, we've gone through a sustained period of, as you say, almost free money. And that inevitably keeps unprofitable businesses afloat. And now that we've seen this adjustment in interest rates, we're obviously going to see a pullback in
0: occupier demand and, and mm. probably vacancy rates. As and well. what does that look like? Because in Britain, we've been having this debate over the future of work, working from home, and it's starting to rebound now. But there is a view that as more firms start to shred jobs, and more firms are announcing redundancies by the day, that there's going to be a bit of a return to presenteeism, where people decide <laughs> they want to come into the office actually on a Monday and a Friday for a change for the first time in three years, because they're, they're worried <laughs> that they might get the boot. Do yeah, you, I th- think the psychological impact of all of this is going to be quite interesting to watch. But what's it like in Singapore? Because obviously it's a little bit harder in Singapore, isn't it? Because even quite high-paid workers live in quite small apartments. So it's a slightly different dynamic to America where you've got sprawling houses that cost, you know, five pounds. uh, (laughs) And quite high-paid execs in Singapore and Hong Kong will often work in small properties. So does that drive a greater level of working from the office? And how have firms in Singapore and across other Asian hubs responded to the whole working from home shift?
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And I think we're probably still very early in the whole analysis of this trend, because certainly in Singapore, and I can only speak for you know, our company and other companies I know quite well, in that even though we're a very small city, you know, we're not even as wide and as deep as the M25, right? Commuting times in Singapore are very short. Most people's 20, 25 minutes, something like that. So there's really no barrier to coming to the office if you want to. But having said that, Occupational levels, I would say, are probably not much above 50% in most companies, even you know, on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Wow. 15? Five-zero. Five-zero. 50, yes. Even so, that's still a- even so, it is still relatively low. I mean, I think some companies have been more proactive about trying to get people back to the office, others less so. I think it's quite company-specific at the moment in terms of their approach to where they see their employees working and how productive
0: they think their employees are in different environments. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think you think people are quite pleased we've got a COVID vaccine, but it almost feels like we need another vaccine to cure lazyitis. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure people working at home are necessarily any lazier than those coming I into the know. office. I mean, I don't think you can make a sweeping generalisation, but I, you know, as somebody that's built a few businesses, sold a couple of companies and speaking to people day-to-day that run businesses. I think there is a feeling that if someone is at home doing the washing or they've got the TV oil in the background, that is going to be different for being in the office. And I think whilst there are many, many things that you can do brilliantly at home, and obviously in, in my company a lot of the work that we do is speaking to people, advising, writing and analysing and researching, and you can do that from anywhere, from mm. a, the beach in Bali if you want. But I think there is a need particularly in real estate and the advisory landscape that you and I both work in, Mm. just to be around people. And the fact that we're having this conversation now in person, and I was keen to do this in person because it's much easier and the quality is so much better. And I think many people listening to this will know that feeling about just having random conversations with people by the stairs or in the lobbies and this sense of Zoom making it such that you've got to make an appointment just to speak to somebody. (laughs) I yes. think that is what hinders productivity more than anything.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. I mean, I find I'm much more productive in the office than I am working from home. And it is interesting, actually, because within the real estate community, I think both in Singapore and here in London, when I've been having meetings this week, it hasn't been a problem saying to people, oh, well, you know, is it okay if we meet at your office? They've all said, "Yep, yeah, no problem, three or four days a week. So I think maybe we've got a self-interest and an industry Interest to make sure that office occupancy continues to improve so that these offices survive and thrive moving forward. Whereas across other parts of the financial services industry, if you will, I've noticed that they're maybe still not back in the office as much as the real estate community Mm. is. And I was struck actually, I've been in Seoul and Tokyo within the last three months or so. Seoul was almost completely back to normal. You know, 90% of people in the office. They said they're coming in mostly five days a week. Tokyo, the other end of the spectrum. Some of the meetings we had, they said, we've only come to the office because you've come to see us. So quite an interesting dynamic. And my assumption was that, well, both cities would be back to more or less normal working habits. But I think particularly in Tokyo, they were saying the fact that they don't have to do the commute is a big reason why they stay at home.
0: Mm. Well, I guess it's a brutal commute sometimes if you're coming into one of those big hubs around Tokyo. But I I thought if you're in somewhere like one of the smaller cities, Osaka and other places like that would be a bit more pleasant. But
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because they came out of COVID slightly later. And it's only recently that they've dropped a lot of their restrictions. So maybe it's just taking people time a bit longer to get back into it.
0: And what does that mean for pricing? So in terms of real assets when you're looking at performance and you're working with global institutions to think about performance over 2022 and over the last few years, how are you able to determine something that's a small blip versus something that's a structural change? Because some of these things uh, might flip around or they might not. Um, So what does that mean in terms of the research that you're giving? So when you're sat there with people from GIC or Allianz or whoever it might be, and, and they're saying, well, what does the next couple of years look like? How are you able to help determine that? And what are you saying to those people?
1: Well, hopefully, we're trying to bring as much transparency and as much data to their decision making processes as possible. And Japan is going to be a very interesting kind of microcosm because virtually every other developed market in the world is going to see much higher interest rates, not just by a few basis points. This is going to be four or 500 basis point shift in interest rates, you know, which is going to obviously have an impact on real estate values and yields. So Japan may actually be the place where we can examine this working from home trend more accurately than other parts. Because there are less variables. Because there are less variables going into the mix and it will be really a case of, okay, there's no need to move pricing because of interest rates. So that any price movement should be based on the demand for office space kind of naturally from occupiers. Mm. So undoubtedly we're in for a period of much, much softer Valuations and probably a much, much lower transactional environment. And, you know, our job is to try and give these investors as much insight as we possibly can into how these trends are going to play out over the next few years. I think the working from home, we're probably still too early, really, to be definitive as to, you know, there's been some stories, you know, in the press over the last few weeks about companies maybe wanting to take up to half of the space they currently. Occupy, but I think it's going to be very company specific and mm. undoubtedly even just the sentiment is probably going to have an impact on rental growth, particularly as we go into a softer economic environment as well.
0: Now, of course, the elephant in the room of a lot of this is China, because obviously it's not the most investable market. There have been huge challenges in the residential market all sorts of things happening in terms of China clamping down on its companies investing abroad, huge repricing going on at home, and big question marks over the banking system in many local geographies and the degree to which central support is going to prop them up, which it appears Mm. to have been doing. Mm. How does all of this feed through into the commercial real estate market, and particularly given China's much greater levels of COVID restrictions which have been really keeping a lid on anything and it's it really looking like a third year of these restrictions yes so i'm interested two things then and i guess it's impossible to extrapolate them but the political situation and thinking again you talked a little bit earlier about tech but the clamp down on chinese tech firms by the state government over the last couple of years has been a hugely impactful blocker on growth and that obviously has sent shockwaves through different markets so how does that make real estate investors think and feel and what's that number of pricing and then secondly the long tail fallout from covid clearly is keeping a on occupancy as well
1: yes and i think you know china has become a much more difficult investment market to navigate i would say not just for property investors for investors of all types who want to have exposure. I think it's the region's biggest market. It's still this year going to be the biggest investment market, despite all of the challenges. We've definitely seen it become a more domestically driven market. And obviously there have been challenges around the COVID policy, which doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. So just when you think things are clearing up, another city goes back into lockdown and you know that really hurts investor sentiment. In particular, I mean, we have seen international capital with boots on the ground continue to buy and to invest in the country. And obviously, Chinese logistics is still somewhere that a lot of investors are under allocated to. So we still see the capital raising for those types of investments still relatively buoyant. But I think if you haven't invested in China before, then there's a lot more reasons, I guess, not to invest in China now than there have been maybe in the last five years or so when access to information was getting easier pre-COVID and just being able to navigate the market was becoming a lot easier as well. So maybe we've just taken a couple of steps back in terms of the ease of doing
0: or making investment decisions in China. Because some would argue, if you look at some of the data, that China is actually an excellent proposition to invest, given that it's got potentially amazing levels of demand in areas like logistics, particularly life sciences, education. So whilst there's always going to be cyclical challenges in the Chinese residential market, every market has cyclical challenges. It's Correct. not just China. US has them, UK has them, Canada has them, Nordics have them. Yeah. But equally, if you want to deploy capital at scale, China's arguably one of the best places to do that.
1: Correct. And you know, the drivers of Chinese growth over the last twenty years are still intact. You know, there's still huge urbanization. There's still rising middle classes, which is you know benefiting the logistics sector in particular. Although there's been a big crackdown on terms of the big tech in China, you know it's still a very uh, innovative country and very entrepreneurial, and hmm. a lot of the technology that's being driven or being developed in China, I think, will... So know, should work-
0: investors be looking twice at it? Should investors be able to cut through some of the noise and look a bit more closely at the fundamentals, do you think? Is that what you would yeah, th- argue? Yeah,
1: and I think the longer-term investors are probably doing that. And, you know, China has always been a longer-term investment market. You don't see too many investors go in and sell out within three or four years. It's always more of a 10 to 15-year play. Mm. And, you know, given the scale of the investment market, it is somewhere where you do need to take the long-term view in terms of, okay, this is somewhere we want to be probably for the next 50 years, not just for the next 10 or 15 years. Years. So I think those groups that already have a China strategy, I think they will stick to it. Maybe they'll just slow the pace of deployment mm. down a little bit. And those who haven't yet invested in China,
0: the opportunities are still there, but it's probably just how you navigate them is changing slightly. And final question, David. At the end of November, MSCI published some data reinforcing, should we say, that the green premium with of offices are around 25%. Is that something that's seen across the Asian markets, this is published in London, but is this a data set that applies everywhere or is it only in certain markets?
1: The data set is slightly different in different markets based on how easy it is for us to get hold of some of this rating information. But I think the trend is consistent around the world in that investors are gravitating towards, if they weren't anyway, the greener, more sustainable buildings. Now, the price differential is maybe not misleading, but obviously the better quality, newer buildings tend to have higher prices anyway. And they tend to be the more sustainable and have the higher environmental rating. So correlation, not causation, perhaps. Correct. So there's a little bit of that in there. I think what we will be developing over the next year or so is how much of a discount there will be for some of the older, less well-rated buildings. So where it's more difficult to upgrade the buildings, upgrade the services, reduce the emissions, how much of a discount will those buildings have to command to actually sell in the market? Because that gap will naturally widen if the brown discount continues
0: to be a play in the market. Well, of course, you're the green premium, David Green Morgan. <laughs> well, look, fantastic to see you, David. Thanks thank so much you. for coming in and some great insights on the Asian market. And look forward to hopefully getting out of myself and seeing you next <laughs> year. I'm a massive fan of Tokyo, big, big fan of Japan, and can't wait to get back on the Japanese bullet train. So But fantastic to see you. Thanks for coming in, David. And thank you very much for listening. I've been Andrew Teacher. You can continue to get in touch via LinkedIn. You can send us some messages do please rate and review the podcast which you can subscribe to as ever apple amazon spotify wherever you get your podcast from do please keep subscribing and checking back on propertyweek.com for the latest news and analysis of everything that's happening right now and if you'd like to suggest any guests for future episodes then we're very very open to suggestions but appreciate your support appreciate your loyalty and appreciate you listening we'll see you again very very soon take care